ladies and gentlemen, girls and boys, and welcome to another episode of Mafia Wife Life. Um, you know, I have been still constructing this, this memoir, which is really this series of stories, as I say. And when you take it from stories or essays and create a, a narrative that becomes what would ultimately be a book, a memoir, then you are actually building. That's how I think of it. And that, um, when I was able to think of it as, a, as something that I was building, it was a lot easier because it, because it was something that I could think of with shape. And anything that I've designed in my life, you know, has had a shape. And it, and it has had a practical root. You know, clothes, you have to wear clothes. Um, houses, you live in them. Offices, you work in them. Food, you consume it. Gardens, you experience them and you enjoy them visually. You know, you smell them, you eat them. So these were all three-dimensional things that I engaged with, but writing, as I told the Zigod's father, was very challenging because there was no shape. And I would say I f would feel like a Labrador retriever running across um, an ice rink after a Zamboni had smoothed it out. And I, I was saying how hard it was for me to find my footing, but as I have been able to build it and think of it in that way it's been it's been you know a challenge that I have certainly enjoyed and so I'm able to look at it more from an aerial view like I'm a crop duster um, instead of being at the bottom of a well you know hearing my own voice echo as I'm yelling up toward the sky so and, you know, you don't, I don't write in order, but then when I'm constructing the, the, the manuscript, you know, if I'm constructing something to create a narrative, then I go back to something that I've already written and then tentacle off from there. So this, you know, excerpt is kind of a continue, well, not kind of, it is a continuation of what I had written about my Aunt Pinky in a previous uh, episode. Um, Pinky was my uh, aunt on my mother's side of the family. She was the oldest um, child in that family. And my story, as anybody's story is, it is their own unique story. Every story is unique to the person who experienced it. You have, when it comes to memory, you know, there's an intersection between memory and imagination. And there is something, you know, that is known as collective memory. And that's kind of interesting too, because if you talk to somebody else who was around at the same time, their memory is different. They might remember more things or less things, but they typically remember things differently. And that is because everyone perceives 
the their world through their own eyes it's fascinating um so i'm sort of extending here on that previous excerpt about pinky and um so i say i don't recall ever having a conversation with pinky beyond the perfunctory hellos and goodbyes of our summer reunions avoiding such encounters in a family the size of ours was easy like weaving through a series of do-si-dos at a barnyard square dance at week's end when it came time for our belabored and dramatic farewells, we'd pretend we were sorry that we hadn't had the chance to catch up. We'd promise each other that the next time we would, but when the next time came, the same thing would happen, an odd ritual mostly fine by me. Approaching certain relatives felt ominous, though I had no understanding of the whys of it back then. Mostly, instead of talking to them, I preferred listening to them talk to each other as they sat around the long tables my grandfather built in his workshop. Pop's tables, as we, as we called them, were topped with formica that coordinated with the countertops in our 70s style kitchens. Our model, bright with white silver speckles, was edged in aluminum and sat directly beneath the oversized fluorescent light fixture that illuminated our kitchen producing a sterile, clinical feel more suited to a hospital, operating room, or morgue. Still, though, at eight feet, our table was the longest pop had ever made, a distinction I was proud of. Pinky and her family lived in a small post-war brick rancher a few miles from my grandparents. I visited only once that I know of. Her house seemed farther away than it actually was because of the wide river that divided them. Getting to Pinky's meant crossing a long bridge that my grandfather helped build back in the 50s before most of us were born. The Susquehanna Bridge seemed famous to me, like the Statue of Liberty or one of the monuments in Washington, D.C. We called it Pop's Bridge. Postcards existed, shot from wide-angle wide lens at dusk, featuring the bridge alone. Driving across the bridge felt like a very big deal. I thought Pinky was lucky having such provenance and that maybe such proximity meant she was a little famous too. I imagined strangers in checkout lines asking for her autograph or maybe being interviewed on the local news. I wondered why that alone wasn't enough to make her happy. I had no shot at such provenance or fame by proxy either. In those days, we'd never lived anywhere long enough to experience those kinds of benefits and no one I knew had ever heard of the Susquehanna Bridge. It was dark inside Pinky's house the day we visited, though we arrived in the middle of a bright summer afternoon. Despite her blinds being shut, sunlight persisted, outlining the perimeter of the living room's big picture window. I didn't sit down that day. None of us did except for Pinky, who remained perched on a vinyl ottoman in the middle of the room, staring at something the rest of us couldn't see. There were none of the exuberant greetings or offers of peanuts or pop, standard refreshment when we visited our other relatives. That afternoon, I mostly watched Pinky watch whatever it was she was watching, and then we left as uneventfully as we'd arrived. I blinked when we stepped outside, adjusting my eyes to the sunlight as we walked towards my mother's pea green station wagon parked in the driveway. None of us waved as we backed into the street. We knew without looking that Pinky wasn't there. 
Our summer trips involved frustrating logistics and none of the ease that our Pennsylvania relatives enjoyed when visiting each other. Newspaper and mail delivery needed to be held, piano lessons rescheduled, and our oversized metal trash cans needed to be dragged to the curb for pickup while we were away. Coins were gathered for the many tolls we'd encounter along the Pennsylvania Turnpike. In the days leading up to departure, meals were ad hoc and unfamiliar, our thrifty mother's attempts at phasing out perishables that would otherwise rot during our absence. All Pinky had to do was get in her car and drive across the bridge. I didn't understand how happiness or its absence worked in those days. I know now that it was never the river that separated Pinky from the rest of her family, any more than it was Pop's bridge that connected her to us. Pinky was married to Bill, one of the relatives I mostly avoided, though I couldn't have articulated the whys of it back then. He didn't engage much and spent most of his time in the living room, watching sports on TV and drinking my grandfather's bottles of black label beer. It's likely that Bill avoided me also, not unusual in a family the size of ours. There were simply too many of us to connect with in meaningful ways. Though we were surely united, mostly what I heard when we were together was the garbled sound of collected vo collective voices rising and falling. Being inside that sonic cocoon felt natural, primitive even, like something I'd always known. I didn't mind not connecting with certain relatives and mostly capitalized on their disinterest, preferring instead to listen to, to, listen to them talk to each other. When it came to his family, Bill's attention was mostly focused on his youngest son, Matthew, a state champion high school wrestler so obviously the apple of his father's Irish blue eyes. Their oldest son was Pepper, who had the distinction of being the first grandchild born on the keen side of the family. Pepper's Irish features were widely celebrated, his soft red hair and light blue eyes considered a boon to the gene pool. Their middle son was Patrick, born with dark hair. Patrick possessed none of the Irish features of his older brother, nor was he blessed with the athletic talent that came so naturally to Matthew. What Patrick did have was intrigue. He was quiet for one thing, a contrast to my otherwise rowdy and boisterous cousins. Patrick's physicality amounted to what my relatives characterized as black Irish, a centuries old way of describing the minority subset of Irish nationals born with dark hair. It's possible that Patrick was merely shy. It's also possible that whatever was happening with his mother's delicate spirit was beginning to happen to his own as well. Had Patrick been within 50 miles of Hollywood in the early 1990s, the world might never have known a Matt Dillon, a Johnny Depp, or a River Phoenix. Next to Patrick, those guys would have seemed like Ivy League frat boys. Patrick was our family's James Dean but time would show us that he was also our David Kennedy, Robert Ernelfield's ill-fated son, whose long-term struggle with drug and alcohol addiction resulted in an early death years before the rest of his many siblings and cousins. Sometime during the years when the rest of us were graduating high school and going to college, Patrick's drinking picked up. His attendance at our summer reunions became sporadic, 
until he finally stopped showing up at all. It was strange not having him around that I asked his father, my Uncle Bill, about it. He told me that Patrick could never come back home to Pennsylvania or he'd get in big trouble. He shrugged when he said it, then took another pull from his bottle of beer. He didn't tell me what Patrick had done, and I had the feeling I shouldn't ask, so as was my habit, I imagined it instead. I thought maybe Patrick had held up a liquor store or gotten busted for selling pot. In my mind, such things weren't serious enough to keep him away from us. I had the idea that maybe Bill was blowing the whole thing out of proportion. I wanted to tell him that state troopers had better things to do with their time than to watch out for Patrick trying to sneak back home. Years later, I learned he stayed away not because he wanted to, but because he was a fugitive, wanted on charges of vehicular manslaughter after smashing his car into another car killing a pregnant mother and her toddler daughter while driving drunk in the middle of a weekday afternoon. Patrick's life on the lamb was funded by relatives, mostly Big Mary, our family matriarch by then. Known for being selective about who she favored, Big Mary had a soft spot for Patrick and always took his phone calls, sporadic as they were. She knew of his whereabouts and sent money to the addresses he gave her in secret. Despite holding positions of leadership in her church, Big Mary found a way to reconcile her actions surrounding the aiding and abetting of a fugitive. Worse was her ability to justify denying the family of the dead the possibility of some justice of their own. When Big Mary died, blowing a hole through the rest of us, no one had a way of letting Patrick know that she'd left us. Months after her funeral, he called her house in Greenville, not realizing she was gone. I don't know who Patrick talked to after that, or who might have funded his miserable life on the run. Not long after, we heard that Patrick was dead too, the first of us 35 cousins to die. Patrick's 52-year-old heart stopped beating somewhere in Louisiana after decades of alcohol abuse. Regarding my sensitive cousin, no one can say what came first his problems with alcohol, or his struggle with the possibility of having a mind like his mother's, who had a mind like her mother's, and so on. No one said anything about issues surrounding mental health back then, even though our family was filled with doctors and nurses. No one discussed things like interventions or psychological evaluations or the possibility of inpatient rehabilitation. In my family, you were either normal or in the nut house. There seemed to be no in-betweens. There was no funeral that I know of. Patrick's was the first family death that no one seemed to acknowledge. Funerals were a big deal in my family, mostly for the Irish wakes that surrounded the service. The wakes were throwdowns of such epic proportion that one of my great uncles threw his own while he was still alive just so he wouldn't have to miss it. I loved running around with my cousins at my grandparents' house after the service, collecting pull tabs from the countless cans of beer the mourners consumed. Looping one tab through another, our aluminum daisy chains were magical, long enough to wrap many times around the nearby evergreens, glistening like Christmas under the stars. In what should be considered a statistical improbability, Patrick wasn't my only cousin to kill someone with his car. During medical school, 
Another cousin hit a homeless man crouched along a curb one rainy night as she left the hospital where she was doing her training. It was an accident, but still a man died. There were no charges, and my cousin continued her education, eventually earning the prized MD, so coveted in my family. It was understandably hard on her, living with the guilt of killing another human being, accident or otherwise. But what made things harder was her parents' nonchalance, telling her that it was no big deal because the guy was homeless anyway. Without exception, our reunions included limitless qualities of beer, wine, and other spirits. Once the sun went down, our bootleg summer camp turned into Woodstock, the grown-ups turned a blind eye to us kids as we pumped lukewarm beer from the keg Big Mary set up in the spare garage. Once the booze kicked in, our cinder block hangout turned into a nightclub. Our music blasted from the hand-me-down speakers my cousins rigged up after Big Mary and Tom splurged on a new state-of-the-art system for their living room. Every summer there was some snazzy new something at the Joneses, a pool table, an oversized colored TV that came with a remote control. Every couple of years, there would be a brand new Lincoln in the driveway, the luxury town car my uncle favored for his short commute, commute to the local hospital where he fulfilled his duties as chief radiologist. Mary enjoyed being the wife of a specialist, joining the country club and sitting on various boards. Big Tom took up golf, and soon enough, snazzy new gear began lining the walls in the garage. Later came the party-sized hot tub, and finally the in-ground pool with a curvy blue slide. Despite the fact that most of us were well below the drinking age in the state of Pennsylvania, our parents took no issue with our debauchery so long as none of us were driving or lighting fireworks in the expansive backyard. Though our dangerous consumption was never enough to kill us, the hangovers we endured the following day made us wish we were dead. Our mothers were blasé about the puking we did and mostly preoccupied with whether or not we had made it to the bathroom on time. Thanks to those freewheeling summers, I had a solid baseline for what entry-level partying looked like. Under the light of a Pennsylvania moon, I smoked my first cigarette, shotgunned my first beer, inhaled my first joint, and had my first taste of Irish whiskey. I recall none of it feeling out of bounds. The Kennedy cousins might have had Hyannis, but they didn't have Greenville. Because my mother and her sisters began having children around the same time, there were plenty of us cousins close in age. By the time their chi childbearing years were behind them, my mother and her four Catholic siblings would produce a total of 35 children. Peggy was my buddy cousin, Aggie and John's second daughter. Though just four months older than me, her December birth date meant she was able to start school the year before I did. Based on this arbitrary cutoff, I believe she knew more than me about almost everything. She had a strange way of rationalizing things that I mostly went along with, convincing me with her oddball, illogical logic. Had Peggy been four months younger than I was, instead of the other way around, I wouldn't have bought into most of her bullshit but that's how seniority worked for me then. Peggy got bored easily, so was always trying to make things happen, part of what made her such fun to be around. 
but her many experience, her, her many experiments and low budget schemes had a way of backfiring, mostly on me. One afternoon, we were waiting in her father's car while he went in somewhere to run an errand. The minute he was out of sight, Peggy started fidgeting with the dashboard, turning the radio dial, pushing in buttons and changing the presets. She fiddled with the rear view mirror and laid on the horn when a pedestrian walked by, hoping to scare them and laughing when she did. When she noticed the cigarette lighter, her energy shifted immediately. Somehow she seemed to slow down and speed up at the same time. She got the same crazy look in her cat-shaped eyes that I'd seen so many times before by then. Pointing her finger, she began circling the knob of the lighter, slowly at first, then picking up speed the closer her finger got to the knob. It was creepy, like a vulture before landing its prey. Finally, she pounced, jamming the lighter into the dashboard. Then she sat back and waited, closing her eyes and breathing hard like she'd just run a race. When the lighter popped out, she pounced again, grabbing it, then sitting back and slowing down again, rolling the knob between her finger and thumb. She made a big deal of wanting me to watch its orange glow and the heated coil inside. She was methodical about it, acting like she was in some trance that she wanted me to be a part that she wanted me to be a part of too. After a minute, I got dizzy, so turned to look out the window. Just as I did, I felt a searing pain in the fleshier part of my thigh, just beneath the fringe of my cut-off shorts. The heat was so intense that it felt cold at first, and I was disoriented, not knowing where the sudden pain had come from. I looked down to where the heat was radiating and saw a perfectly formed red circle beginning to rise on my skin. The throbbing seemed to keep time with my now pounding heart. It registered then what had happened, and I turned to Peggy, who was watching me with a single raised eyebrow, a skill she'd recently acquired. She'd been studying me, like a mad scientist on the other side of a two-way mirror. I was her monkey. She took pleasure in watching her sadistic little experiment unfold, and by the time I was able to speak, she was already bored. Because of the dynamics of our relationship, I knew Peggy's answer before even asking the obvious question of why she'd done it. She told me she'd wanted to know what it felt like, then turned the radio up full blast. Asking Peggy why she hadn't burned herself would have been logical, but by then I was deeply versed in the ways that logic didn't apply when it came to her, and what her mother referred to as her shenanigans. I didn't think of my cousin as a troublemaker back then. I appreciated her high-spirited nature and the mostly harmless pranks she got me to co-sign on. Excuse me, I get parched. We spent long summer afternoons in her parents' bedrooms, in her parents' bedroom, taking advantage of the cool air blowing from their window unit and making prank calls from the push-button phone on their nightstand. If we had cigarettes, we'd share them in her parents' bathroom flicking our ashes into the orange 70-style ashtray that hovered midair like from a slinky-like coil hung from the ceiling. We'd go to the pool and pretend we were drowning just to break up an afternoon. Though we never had money, Peggy would talk me into walking to the nearby 7-Eleven for Slurpees, then scamming the cashier when it came time to pay. She developed elaborate storylines, choreographing our moves as carefully as if she were directing a Broadway production. 
Once we were given our total, it was go time in mirror image symmetry that could put a Cirque du Soleil performance to shame. We'd turn slowly and like outlaws in an old Western, point our finger pistols at each other and say in unison, I thought you were bringing the money. And then we'd freeze wide-eyed, letting our so-called conundrum hang in the air. Usually we'd leave with Slurpees in hand, though Peggy was never satisfied and would spend the entire walk home critiquing our performance and speculating about the pros and cons of adding candy or gum to our scheme the next time we tried it. Peggy could rationalize anything and would work hard trying to convince me that the Pall Mall she wanted me to steal from Big Mary's purse wasn't really stealing at all, but a demonstration of how much we cared about the health of her lungs. She treated me like her personal prize fighter, massaging my shoulders and giving me pep talks before sending me into the ring to do her bidding, whatever it was. Peggy was gifted at shifting the narrative in order to distance herself from personal responsibility. She felt no guilt about the vodka she pilfered from her parents' kitchen cabinets, rationalizing that the water she replaced it with was ultimately better for their hydration. Later, she qualified the orgy she participated in, insisting they weren't really orgies at all, but a matter of having sex with different people in the same room at the same time. I had a front row seat to Peggy's increasingly bizarre behavior one summer during college when we lived together at the beach in Ocean City, Maryland. Peggy's habit was to wake up with one guy in the morning, sleep with the second in the afternoon, and go to bed that night with a third. There was never a time when she wasn't drinking, beginning her days with vodka. She carried a pint-sized bottle of bourbon during the day, swinging it from her wrists in the crown royal bag she used as a purse. Both of us worked at an old-time photo, photo studio on the boardwalk, a job we enjoyed for different reasons. I liked styling the customers and creating new compositions in the makeshift Victoria, Victorian parlor and overstocked saloon. Peggy liked the job for the dark room. In the days before digital photography, Film was developed under strict time constraints in a room so dark you couldn't see your own hand if it were in front of your own if it were in front of your eyes. If Peggy was drinking or having sex with a coworker, all she had to do was say processing, and whoever it was would simply walk away from the door, no questions asked. Our shifts ended around midnight, and there was always a party going on somewhere. Most nights, not long after we arrived. Peggy would disappear with a stranger, leaving me stranded. Sometimes a day or two would pass before I saw her again, and she'd offer me another one of her meaningless apologies, insisting that she hadn't wanted to interrupt my fun by leaving the way that she did. Despite her growing list of idiosyncrasies, Peggy was my favorite person. I admired her talent for persuasion and minimized her malignant habit of accepting no, pers no, res no personal responsibility for her actions. I excused the way that she hurt the ways that she hurt people, especially her parents, my favorite aunt and uncle, Aggie and John. Despite their increasing disappointment, it was always so clear that they loved her. Like Peggy, I had my own way of rationalizing things. What I came to accept about Peggy was that she didn't set out to hurt anyone on purpose. It was mostly that she didn't care when she did. The Peggy I grew up with always wanted to know God, 
She blessed herself in the mornings with drops of holy water she squeezed from the small bottle she kept on her dresser. Because of this, I kept a bottle on my dresser too, blessing myself for years. She closed her eyes when she said grace and never went to sleep without saying her prayers. During mass, I did the same kneeling and standing and singing and praying that she did, but my actions were rote, not conscious and intentional, like hers seemed to be. I gave no thought to the words I repeated along with the rest of the congregation. I went through the motions, waiting for it to be over. Peggy was on high alert during the service, leaning forward in the pew, studying the action as closely as if she were a coach in the NFL on a Sunday game. She envied the altar boys, saying it wasn't fair that they got to be closer to God. Arguing that it wasn't really God at the altar was pointless. What mattered to Peggy was what she wanted to believe. She started sleeping in square-necked choir gowns, likely hoping to be of service during her dreams. She was always looking for evidence, proof that God was real. Peggy wasn't interested in the abstract storybook version of God that we'd been conditioned to believe in since the days of our baptisms. What she wanted was to know God in the flesh. After college, Peggy accepted an entry-level position selling office supplies in a small territory outside Philadelphia. Her days were mostly spent in and out of her car, calling on businesses trying to fill her quota. She worked independently and reported to no one during the week, a position that made her feel lonely. Though she came in contact with a variety of people, her new role felt isolating. Peggy was looking for connection. It was during this period that she met a group of young women who operated their own house cleaning business, working in teams during the day and gathering together in the, gathering together in the evenings for Bible study. As was their practice, they asked Peggy to join them, an invitation she gratefully accepted. Their fellowship accelerated quickly, and soon Peggy was living with them in cleaning houses too, a choice her college tuition-paying parents weren't thrilled with. It was during this hazy in-between phase that the Peggy I grew up with began to disappear. I told her she was changing, but she couldn't or wouldn't see it, arguing that I couldn't understand because I didn't love God the way that she did, another one of her classic non-rational rationales. These were the early days of her transformation, before any of us suspected that something more sinister might be percolating beneath the surface of her Bible-thumping new peer group. No one used the word cult early on, though we should have. In hindsight, the signs were all there. After a few short months, Peggy accepted a marriage proposal from a guy that had all of us scratching our heads. Peggy had a long history with jocks, quarterbacks, and captains of the baseball and basketball teams. She loved solid, athletic, good-looking guys that could pick her up on the dance floor. Carmen, Peggy's new fiancé, was skinny and several inches shorter than she was with balding gray hair. He spoke little English, the only son of Italian immigrant parents. Like the others in their burgeoning fellowship, Carmen ran his own business too, delivering soft pretzels to local businesses and finishing early enough to attend the growing number of Bible study classes that were continually forming in their expanding circle. 
The romance was confusing and seemed more like an alliance of some sort, which in retrospect it proved to be. There was no obvious chemistry between them, and on the day of her wedding, after downing a few shots of whiskey, said, let's get this show on the road before shuffling down the makeshift aisle. Peggy and Carmen began building their flock immediately, having four daughters in quick succession, each of them the image of their dark-eyed, olive-skinned father. Peggy had the familiar blue eyes and fair skin of the bulk of our family, features none of her offspring possessed. During those early years, the fellowship exploded, and Peggy and Carmen became, became a kind of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, holding Bible study sessions in their home several nights a week. Carmen gave up his pretzel route, and the two of them started selling Amway, ambushing strangers in parking lots and checkout lines at stores. Colorful sticky notes with handwritten Bible verses and words of encouragement were posted all over their house. The refrigerator displayed a real estate listing of an enormous home far beyond their reach. When I asked Peggy about it, she told me with typical nonchalance that the house was hers. They just hadn't gotten around to buying it yet. By then, I didn't have the heart to argue with her about what was actually factual and what wasn't. For her sake, I wanted it to be true, but I knew it wasn't. We were standing in the cramped kitchen of a shabby duplex they'd rented just off the highway. The alley behind their unit was littered with broken bottles and discarded needles, though they parked the family car there anyway, a faded navy blue Crown Victoria, at least 20 years past its prime. I knew Peggy was still drinking, though trying to hide it, given the newborn she was currently nursing. She made excuses to go upstairs to her bedroom, saying there was something she needed, but she'd come back downstairs empty-handed, always reeking of booze. Peggy and her family never made it to their dream house. Thanks to the presence of a flashy new minister, the family's next move took them to a religious encampment in Minnesota, over a thousand miles from home. Peggy had been telling me about a guy named Victor, a young man who'd begun showing up at their Bible study sessions. Peggy spoke of Victor's good looks and supposed charm in the same glowing and breathless way she described her many conquests years earlier during high school and college. When I pressed her about it, Peggy insisted that it was only Victor's charisma that she was attracted to, something we both knew wasn't true. Prior to infiltrating their fellowship, Victor had been a member of the Way International, a non-denominational Christian sect that had encouraged its followers to interpret the Bible on their own terms. Before falling apart in the mid-1980s, the Way International had accumulated tens of thousands of followers in 35 countries. Though the group disbanded for reasons that were never made public, the second president admitted to sexual misconduct with a younger married female follower. Both the founder and his successor were accused of brainwashing and having sex with their female followers. Victor capitalized on this dissolve, gathering disillusioned members of the Way International and founding his own group he called the River Road Fellowship. Victor promised new members that under his leadership, things would be different. As self-appointed minister, Victor convinced his followers to surrender their worldly goods and live together as one entity. 
with proceeds from the liquidated assets of its new devotees, the River Road Fellowship purchased an 85-acre camp in Pine County, Minnesota. Shepherd's Camp, as it was christened, was secluded, and families were isolated, living in small cabins along a dirt road. There were no cell phones or internet. Victor wore long robes, carrying a shepherd's crook with him as he roamed the grounds of his new domain. By design, Shepherd's Camp was a self-sustaining community. Peggy, along with the other women of River Road, homeschooled their children, tended the gardens, and canned their own food. They sewed modest, loose-fitting dresses that fell several inches below their knees. Makeup was forbidden, and women were expected to keep their hair back at all times. The men formed small businesses selling handcrafted furniture, candles, and soap. <clears throat> Cows and sheep were tended to before being slaughtered for food. There were no doctor's visits or immunizations. When someone got sick, it was their prayers that were expected to save them. A year after <clears throat> relocating, Peggy gave birth to a fifth child, a son she named Michael, who looked nothing like his siblings, though remarkably like Victor, her chosen God. She wrote letters home telling her parents how happy she was and letting them know that she was now the bride of Christ. Sometimes her letters included pictures of herself in her wedding gown, standing beside Victor in his Jesus clothes, holding his shepherd's crook at his side, looking like their own twisted version of Grant Wood's American Gothic. Before it was over, Victor's name would appear on the U.S. Marshals' top 10 list, wanted on charges for raping underage girls over a period of nine years. Peggy's oldest daughter was one of the girls, turned over by her own parents to serve as one of Victor's maidens, beginning when she was just 13 years old. Peggy's illogical logic came into play here, considering it an honor to be asked. She agreed with Victor's position, believing that the arrangement was no different than King Solomon in the Old Testament, whose concubines served his needs as well. Though Victor was a pedophile, Peggy would not deny the father, insisting that her underage daughter be grateful for the opportunity to serve him. No one questioned Victor or the creepy ceremony he held one miserable Sunday in front of his congregation. It was pride, not dread, that Peggy felt at the sight of her 13-year-old daughter wearing a veil. No one said anything as they witnessed Victor walk slowly down the line, lifting the veils of each girl before placing salt on their tongues. Parents ooed and awed as their leader placed tiny gold bands on the ring fingers of their daughter's delicate left hands. Following the ceremony, the girls were removed from their families and placed in a separate residence with Victor where they would serve him for the next nine years. They saw their parents and siblings once a month at best at some busted ceremony in the name of the father. They were allowed to witness the slaughtering of the lambs whose blood on the hands of the faithful would rinse all of their sins away. The maidens were forbidden to make eye contact with anyone except for Victor, making the grim reunions with family all the more challenging. When Lindsay finally came forward nine years into her parental-approved service, she was 22 years old. 
After telling authorities, the press, and later the judge that Victor had raped her, Peggy denied everything, denouncing her own daughter in court. Um, you know, the child 